And because I came from a line of activist educators, I was a very involved parent. If any board had a parent seat, I would apply for it, run for it, so that I could be as involved in the process as possible. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Hello, my name is Priscilla Dixon. My role in education, currently I teach 12th grade history. And why do Black educators matter? Because Black children matter. Tell me more. Well, our children need to see themselves. And, and I think this speaks to me being a history nerd. Um, I personally believe one of the things I try to convince my students is that if you know history, you can predict the future. It also helps you analyze the, the, the present. We predict the future, understand and analyze the present. And when you can see yourself in history, it gives you a greater sense of focus and purpose. So when I was in fourth grade, my history book said that Negroes immigrated to the United States. No slavery. No, I mean, like immigrated. Or just, just the concept of saying that America is a nation of immigrants. Yes. Yeah. It's a nation of immigrants that's also based on a forced migration or kidnapping of an entire community and then the, the theft of their labor. So we are constantly being erased from history. And if you don't see yourself in your history, you question your value. For me, and, and I say this as a person who was adopted, it's like you look into the photo album and you don't see anybody who looks like you. And there's a part of you that just wants to connect but you're not necessarily given anything to connect to. As a people in this country, we've been here since 1619. We've been contributing either voluntarily or involuntarily to the growth of this country. And to not see ourselves in the history of this country is um, that, that erasure is is psychologically damaging. So as a history teacher, I always like to help children, young people, to see themselves in the history so they can understand their role in the present and how they can contribute to the future. Speaking of seeing yourself in the history. Walk us through your educational journey. Did you know that you wanted to be a 12th grade history teacher? Um, and where are you from? Yeah. Are you from Chicago? Yeah, I went to William Claude Revis Elementary and then I went to Lewisworth Middle School, which um, I think is now 
part of Kenwood. It's the old Kenwood High School building that was Cantor Middle School for a while. And then I went to Limbloom High School, class of 78. Swoop, swoop. And <laughs> then I went to college in Texas. The first college I attended is no longer in existence. I don't think that's a reflection on me. Um, Bishop College and HBCU. I did a year there, and then I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and then I went to the University of Texas at Austin's Law School. Then I came back home and started working and took the bar and did all the traditional, I'm going to be a lawyer the rest of my life things, and see how well that worked out. So what are your credentials so that we can have a good frame with all of the educational and contextual expertise you bring to this conversation? I have a license to practice law in Illinois. I have worked in charter schools that don't require teaching certification for all of the teachers, but I have an extensive teaching background. I was a poli-sci psych major with a minor in history, and all of that came together. Spent a lot of time dealing with legal writing. I taught that at John Marshall's Law School for a minute. So all of that came together to put me where I am now think that you wanted to be a history teacher. So like, how did you go from lawyer to teacher? How did you go from wanting to be in the, you know, courtroom to the classroom? My mother, both of her sisters, and my grandmother were teachers. And I remember thinking, well, I'm from a family of teachers. Maybe that's what I should do. And my mother said, no, you're too smart. Teachers don't make enough money. They don't get enough respect. And you need to do something where your talents will be rewarded. Uh, my dad was a lawyer, and I thought, well, okay, that's supposed to be the other family business, and that's what I went into. I think that, let me just give you the timeline after that. So I get out of school, I start working, I eventually marry and start a family, and now I'm a CPS parent. And because I came from a line of activist educators, I was a very involved parent. So I was an officer on the LSC at my children's schools. There was one situation with one of my students where I was like, this school is a really bad fit. So I pulled him out and homeschooled him for a year. If any board had a parent seat, I would apply for it, run for it so that I could be as involved in the process as possible. So that included being on the parents board at Hales Franciscan when one of my students was there. Um, it included being very involved with parent activities at Latin when one of my students was there. So I got to see pri elite private parochial and um, public education from a variety of different perspectives. Yeah. And then I went through a, I spent a lot of time as a caregiver to older relatives. And when the last of them passed, I ended up subbing. I needed to get out of the house every day. I subbed for a year in elementary schools. And I spent a month at one school teaching kindergarten, which was wonderful. Oh. <laughs> The little ones are so precious, and the parents are so frantic. It's so beautiful. That's what led me to teaching full-time. That's an incredible journey with a lot of perspective. 
Lots of twists and turns. Lots of twists and turns and lots of, especially when you say educator activist, it's like mm-hmm. you entered the space as an educator activist because of yeah. everything that you had seen, as opposed to someone who was like, I'm going to be a teacher. And they went through a traditional teacher training program and only really came with that lens. You came with the lens of a parent, a caregiver, which teaching is a love language to me. Yes. I love hearing your journey and where it has gotten you. Speaking of like connectedness and seeing yourself, do you have a sense of connectedness with your students now as a 12th grade history teacher? How do you see yourself and your students? How to approach this. As a member of the Black community, I don't come into it expecting a monolithic presentation of, of our membership. And I, I don't change who I am in interacting with the kids. And I try to accept who they are and find a create a space in the middle where we both can be authentic and communicate effectively. And sometimes creating that space is very um, difficult. (laughs) Sometimes it's effortless. I had one student tell me that I was an attention whore. (laughs) And that that was why she didn't like me. And I didn't say it, but I thought, really? Because you remind me of me so much. And I was like, well, okay, you know. For me, giving the children the respect that they should expect from the world is very important. I call all of my students by their surname. I make it a point to say thank you and please and yes, ma'am, no, sir, because words have value and have meaning. And I want to convey love, respect, and trust so that they can do the same with me. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the parallels between your law experience and education. Do you see any parallels between the two? The first thing that comes to mind is the school to prison pipeline. Can you explain what that means? Okay, so you shouldn't ask a history teacher to explain anything. (laughs) Let's start with the fact that Horace Mann and the public school system that we have today was taken from a Prussian model that works best for women of European descent and is least effective with men of African descent. Let's start with the fact that when public education was put in place in the United States of America, it was not designed to educate. We weren't going out trying to get critical thinking or creative um, development exposition examples or anything. What we wanted to do was train our citizenry from working on a farm to working in a factory. Period. I want you to take the skills that you have from the farm and then go into the city and work in this factory and not lose the finger or cause somebody to lose a leg or any of those things. And you're going to fill out forms, but you're you're not going to be doing anything deeper than that. So um, Mortimer Adler, who was an American philosopher and an educational theorist, 
hypothesized that there's an educational elite in the United States of America, and they decide the quality of your education based on your zip code, because most of America is segregated. Uh, we live in clumps of communities. And if your zip code is providing me with domestic and farm workers, your educational community is not going to have access to Shakespeare or Baldwin because you don't need that to mow my lawn, to make my bed. If your educational community is giving me mid-level managers, I'm going to give you something, but it probably isn't going to be Beowulf. It probably isn't going to be Toni Morrison. It's going to be just enough for you to function within the parameter of being a mid-level manager. And as part of the education elite, I'm going to make sure that my children have access to everything. I want them to be exposed to everything, to be challenged critically at an early age. Um, there are all of these systems put in place, not only to support my elite learners, but also to encourage them. My learners that are coming from the community that are giving me domestic and farm workers, we don't have a lot of support or encouragement because I really don't care if you fail. And so if you can't work within the parameters that have been assigned to you, then the options are non-legal activities, which lead you to prison. So as a teacher in, one of, in a school that's part of the pipeline, I want to make sure that you know how to follow orders and you get punished severely for not following orders. I never, I know of one situation that did not happen to me, it happened to a friend of mine. Student fell completely out, completely out of character. And after the situation was um, subdued for the moment, the teacher learned that the student had witnessed a cousin killed, literally in his presence, like blood got on the baby. And the teacher had to fight the administration for a restorative justice situation because there was a zero tolerance policy. The student had hit someone and that's the end of it. But once everybody involved learned what the child was trying to process, no one but the administration wanted zero tolerance put it, being applied to him. And I think, I think very often in these types of schools, the minute you do something wrong, you get a demerit, uh, you get detention, you get referred out, and there's never a... So Priscilla, what's really bothering you? What's going on? Is this something I can help with? Um, and then maybe that conversation doesn't lead anywhere, but also maybe it does. And then you find out what I'm dealing with and you put constructive supports and appropriate treatment in place so that I can process it and work through it, which benefits me and the rest of the community. 
So when you don't have those restorative justice things in place and peace circles, um, you're basically teaching kids, follow the rules, period, or be punished. And the punishment is always taking you away from out of the educational sphere. The punishment results in you being removed from that space. So for those who do not understand restorative justice, for those who would say, well, the rules are the rules, you break the rules, you need to be punished because the real world won't give you all of these breaks. Does restorative justice work? Is it effective? Yes. And I'll say that as someone who has participated in restorative justice as a complaining witness. Um, I had an interaction with a student where I felt physically threatened. And it triggered me because I'm a domestic violence survivor. It took two sessions, but we were able to get to a place where the student could empathize with my situation, shared information about himself that allowed me to understand where he was coming from and how I could have misinterpreted his behavior. And there was, um, there was apologies and growth on both sides because my initial reaction to the situation was, call the police, I'm done. I don't have to be bothered. As opposed to seeing his humanity and understanding that um, he was just as triggered as I was. And I I think the real world does give us breaks. Now, I think the real world doesn't give a black woman as many breaks as it gives a white man. But there are breaks being given. If at your job you turn in a report late because of progressive discipline, you're not fired immediately. You're told you got to fix this by the end of day, and then I don't want to see this out of you anymore. And you have an opportunity to rebuild and reclaim your uh, reputation as a competent employee. I think in most relationships, everyone has done something where you go, oh, did I say that? That that doesn't sound like me. But you know you said it, and you know it was hurtful. And then you have an opportunity to try and rebuild the relationship and reestablish the trust. Why should it be any different for kids? Shouldn't they learn how to, shouldn't they be taught how to empathize, how to offer a sincere apology. I am so sick of people saying, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Oh, don't let these tears fool you. My my feelings are hurt. That's not in question. What I want to know is when you did it, did you really think that was the right thing to do? And when you saw how it impacted me, how could you just walk away and pretend that I'm not a human being? That's the conversation. That's the apology that needs to happen. And it doesn't happen. And it won't happen if we don't teach the kids how to have them. 
What is so interesting as I'm listening and walking through this history of how we got to education and what education currently looks like, we provide this book information, but the emotional intelligence and growth, we rely on that to happen through osmosis. Like if we never create the space for students and adults to mm -hmm. build this shared empathy and growth on both sides. Like that's the education. That's the that's the magic. Because mm -hmm. when you start to see people as people and when you grow and you start to collaborate and care about each other, that's when that magic can happen in the, that is the classroom management. That's yeah. the classroom management. It's not the all of the tricks and the phrases they have in the uh, teach like a champion. I don't need you to stand over my shoulder. I need you to see me as a human in this space. The other thing that gets me is the um, the narration. Danielle's on task. She's doing a good job. Priscilla, I'm going to give you to, this is your first warning. I need you to get back on task. Really? I think, I think there is a lot in our system. The things that we just got through talking about, are designed for the system to put more children in front of a single teacher and require that teacher to police them and educate them as if that can be done by the same person at the same time. Mm. And policing them is not something that I thought was supposed to be part of the role. It... I'm not exactly sure. So I came through CPS at a point where if you acted out in class, you got sent to the principal's office. And the principal or the assistant principal, or if you had a larger school, one of the, the dean of women or the dean of men, would sit down and talk to you and find out why you can't control yourself and act like you have some sense today. And then they would send you back to class, report to the teacher, you know, Priscilla's dog died and she's just mad at the world. I'm going to reach out to mother and make sure that, you know, she gets comfort and stuff. But in the meantime, and then the teacher also had the option of saying, I wonder if I can create an assignment that will help this student. And everything didn't fall on the classroom teacher because there were, other, when I came through, Elementary schools had a full-time nurse all day, every day. No shared nope. nurses? No just on Wednesday, half a day nope. on Friday? Yes. And she had an office, and in her office there was a couch or a cot so that if you were having feminine issues and you needed a minute with some hot chocolate and the, the, the notion of, of this, we're taking so much out of the educational environment that used to work and replacing it with high stakes testing and high stakes discipline. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter and visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.com. Now, back to our conversation. 
High stakes testing, high stakes discipline, school to prison pipeline. What is the state of education in Black America? <laughs> the state of public education in Black America is dismal because if I hadn't been raised by activist educators, I would have gone through the system and come out a rule follower who didn't question a lot. That was me, a rule follower who didn't question a lot. Because I exactly. was a good student. Yes. I was a good student. You get rewarded for being quiet. You get rewarded for turning your paper in on time. You get rewarded for raising your hand and being polite and knowing the answer. And you do that. The more you're rewarded, the more you do it. And then you become a parent what can I teach you other than to be a rule follower and reward you? But then society changes. Oh, yeah. And I distinctly remember Ronald Reagan taking apart the Social Security Administration and um, affirmative action programs. I distinctly, so now it's harder to get into college. It's harder to get money for college. They're all of, as if there weren't enough obstacles already. So now you also have, how do you expect me to just follow the rules and be obedient when there are no jobs in my neighborhood? So I can't make any money to buy all the things I see that make me feel pretty and make me feel happy. One or both of my parents works jobs that don't provide health insurance, which means I can't go to the doctor to find out why this rash is itchy on my arm. Or I can't see. Thank you. Or I've been eating junk because I live in a food desert because where my parents work, this is what we can afford. And they're out here hustling, trying to take care of me and themselves. But there are structural and systemic things put in place to make our road even harder to hold. So now this is the child that you put in the classroom. There's no nurse. If the baby is eating what's available in the stores in the neighborhood, there's no fruits, there's no vegetables. Processed meats, we don't even know what that's doing to the brain. And I say all of this as a lunatic. So like when I was a, a, a vegetarian, I'm very careful about everything that I ate while I was pregnant and nursing my kids. I made most of their foods when they were little. I had a garden in the backyard, all that kind of nonsense. And <laughs> That's the dream for me. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of an extremist. And so to, to pretend that that child is going to come into the classroom ready and prepared for whatever lesson I've got, is that fair? Fair. And then depending on, on how far, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, school closures in the city of Chicago, depending on how far that child has had to travel to get to school, you have no idea what, and I can't think of the right, there's a, the fight or flight hormone 
So if, if I travel through a adrenaline, adrenaline, yes, if I travel through a dangerous neighborhood to get to school, I'm walking in the building hyped because I've had to be on guard to get there. Where is the time and space for me to go? Okay, I'm safe again. I can relax now. Maybe after you walk through the metal detectors. Okay. Or maybe if I, after I get yelled at for not having my ID or because my uniform isn't pristine. Or because you can't go into class because you don't have a belt. Well, there's that. And maybe I don't bring my um, school supplies because the way I get to school, I got to be light. I got to be quick afoot. I can't have anybody thinking I'm on my way to school. That's an invitation to get jumped. There's, there's a lot that people know that they're not taking into account. And it is particularly impacting black and brown children. How do you, as a history teacher, how do you empower black and brown children to have pride in who they are and understand and connect with that divine light when they are tested on a Eurocentric curriculum that may or may not say Negroes immigrated to the United States for work opportunities? Or when on the news it says people want to get back to work. This country was founded on work. Whose work? Thank you. Who? What so, was the country founded on? So how, how do you teach kids to have a sense of pride in who they are and understand who they are when every day they are erased from history? I unerased them. So... Let's say we're doing United States history and we're talking about the foundation of the country and I make sure that you know the script that the test is going to ask for, but I also discuss the fact that this country was built on the backs of enslaved, kidnapped people. And let me tell you how ingrained that is in American society. This is one of my favorite questions to ask the kids. So, uh, Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president, right? And when he, when the Civil War ended in 1865, slavery ended, 13th Amendment notwithstanding. George Washington was our first president, so that's one through 16. How many of those men, those white men, owned slaves while in office. All of them and their wives. Close. Dang. 14 of them. The good the student only, in me feels terrible and shameful. <laughs> the only two who didn't were um, John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, who I want to say are two and five. Uh, they were Quakers. And Quaker is the only religious organization that never, ever endorsed slavery. So they were all, always adamantly against it, which is not the same as to say that they believed in the equality of Africans as Americans, because that's a whole nother discussion. So um, I talk about how 
George Washington used his power as president to try and reclaim a runaway slave named Ona Judge. We get into the whole argument about Lincoln. My situation with Lincoln is that his wife, a Southerner, Mary Todd Lincoln, owned slaves. They got married. He didn't free them. He owned slaves. Yeah, that's how marriage works. Uh -huh. So, and and we talk about when you when you move around in history. I'm trying to think of big points that tend to get the get the most aha moments from the kids. The Louisiana Purchase. The Louisiana Purchase. France was lost Haiti. Haiti became independent. Because Haiti... The slaves in Haiti, the enslaved people, said, we out. And they fought a war for their freedom, and they won. And they never forgave Haiti. Oh, they're still trying to collect money from Haiti. France said, oh, we spent way too much money on this war that we just lost. We're going to have to sell some land. So the Louisiana Purchase that goes from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Detroit, which is also a French word, they were willing to sell it. The United States of America had money to buy it because of the free labor of enslaved, kidnapped people on these shores. So the seller motivated by, the buyer motivated by, we hear y'all. We everywhere. I think one of the things that I'm talking about with my students right now is wealth inequality and how there are these historical events that document the disparities between white wealth and black wealth in this country. So the average white family is worth $100,000. The average black family is worth $10,000. My God. And um, the average brown family is worth $13,000, I believe. Um, so at the end of the Civil War, nobody got their 40 acres and a mule. Where is our 40 acres and a mule? Where is well, it? It would have helped if um, Abraham Lincoln hadn't been allergic to bullets. Because Sherman, who created that order, once Johnson became president, Johnson was a Southerner. It wasn't going nowhere. Just like the Harriet Tubman $20 bill. Yep. They've been lying, just lying, just lying. So, and then after World War II with the GI Bill, the difference between de facto and de jure Yes, on its face, it says, I get this amount of money for college. But in 1945, where can I, as a black GI, go to school? So now I have to travel to an HBCU, which sucks up some of my money, and go to school. I'm separated from my family. I have to find a place to live. Meanwhile, my white counterpart doesn't have to leave Chicago to go to school. They can stay in their mama's basement and do what, you know, and she's still cooking and doing their laundry. Meanwhile, mm. the GI Bill gave people low interest home, home loans, but as a black person, where can I buy a home? Because you won't let me go 
to these new suburbs that you're creating for the white GIs. So now I can buy in a historically black neighborhood, but you're also going to redline me for my mortgage and my insurance on my house. So there are all of these things that impact how we function in society that have a historical basis. So I try to help kids to see this is what I'm experiencing right now. I can't get I can't get a job for this summer. Assuming we're not in a pandemic, just a regular summer. I can't get a job this summer. What's holding me back? I have good grades, you know, I'm articulate. Why is it that I can't get past that first interview? What historical things are in place and how can I possibly overcome them or run around them? And then I think what happens is you empower our kids to start creating businesses and building things when the system denies them access. Hmm. Thank God for educator activists and people who unerase students and black people, period. Because we are students of life from beginning to end. Totally. Um, is there a black teacher that you would like to thank? There's too many. I mean, just really too many. Like I think about my childhood. I mean, of course I think of women in my family and um, so many women. Uh, one who does stand out now that I understand the importance of a planning period. I had a teacher I, had, I, I was dealing with a bullying situation in middle school, and I had a teacher who used to let me come in and help her during her planning period. And I realized what a valuable sacrifice that was because some days during your planning period, you just need to put your head down. And she would have me come in, and she would find something for me to do, and she would talk to me too. And her name was Sherry Garmany. Her name is Sherry Garmany wonderful, wonderful woman. I think looking out at the one woman who technically isn't, I think she's still a teacher, Stacey Davis Gates. I am always learning from her in terms of how to wage a good fight, but also what are the things that are worth fighting for? You just, you don't always fight because you can win. Sometimes you fight because it's important to, to throw down on this particular issue. Um, wraparound services for our students, so very important. And there are a lot of students with special needs, diverse learners, um, gifted students who are unidentified because there are not enough people in the system to identify them. And my aunt, who's another black teacher I'd have to shout out to, Selma White, Alice Douglas, Catherine Dixon, they were the crew, the Stewart sisters. In any event, she used to always say, the God I served and put all the brains in one neighborhood. So, if you have disparate representation within any program, 
if I come to your school and your AP classes are full of nothing but non-black students, mm. I have to ask, what are you doing? Mm. Because I know those brains are out there. Why haven't you found them? If your diverse learning community is exclusively of one community or another, I have to ask, how? How did that happen? Mm. All the smart kids look like this. Uh Uh-huh. All the diverse learners look like this. All the this looks like this. How? Exactly. And that is, that's, that's incredibly problematic, but it's also evidence of racism, uh, classism, and, and how white supremacy and capitalism work in this country. And in the schools. Mm-hmm. Even at work in the schools. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I told you all of those perspectives was going to give me the frame to ask the questions. Okay, thank you. (laughs) It was so good, but I I thank you for coming. I thank you for sharing your story. I thank you for walking us through your history and history of education in this country, how we got to where we are in the current state of things. Um, You gave me a lot of quotes. The God I serve didn't put all the brains in one neighborhood. Your auntie needs to put that on a t-shirt. I will do that for her in her memory. In her memory. Thank you, auntie. And thank you again, Ms. Dixon, because everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was not as scary as I thought it would be. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's episode of Black Educators Matter. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.